Welcome back to episode 49 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are covering the Stitch Fix IPO, a uh, uh, one that David and I have been excited to uh, to cover since the S1 came out because it's a it's a fun read. It's fun to compare and contrast against other S1s coming out recently. It's a e-commerce leader that is going up against Amazon in Amazon's absolute heyday and rise to prominence. And we're going to dive into figure out you know how can they compete, how can they differentiate, um, how is there still a good business left in e-commerce in an era where Amazon looms high. Yeah, and this is one um, that is really tailor-made for our narrative section because for the longest time, the narrative when Stitch Fix was a private company was this company is crushing it. You know, it's all up and to the right, which as we'll find out, it was. But then it was actually a disappointing IPO in and of itself. So we'll dig into the story here. What happened? Yeah, yeah. And for uh, listeners who are new to the show, so we started as just acquisitions, hence the name acquired. When we added IPOs, we realized we needed to change up our format a little bit. And there's a, a big part of IPOs, which are narratives. And that's both narrative from the company side and narrative from sort of the investor side from from the street. So it's what, are the, what does the company want you to believe? And what does the analyst team or the analysts and media community want you to believe? You never hear much about that in acquisitions because they kind of happen. And then you just hear about the news afterwards. But with the roadshow, and the the lead up and and trying to price optimally depending on your definition of optimally um, there's lots and lots of narratives flying around about IPOs so we will uh we'll dive into that all right well David this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies statsig yes when we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year they were already a pretty impressive kind of series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit but what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. 
at the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Now, that reminds me, we have a Slack now with over a thousand people. If you go to acquire.fm, you can join the Slack. You can uh, learn about any news that we haven't really gotten to yet on the show because we release sort of a, a week and a, or a week and a half after anything happens and mostly kind of just do historical episodes. So if your jam is uh, is talking about news as it's happening with uh, with other nerds like us, uh, jump into the Slack and and uh, enjoy. Yeah, it's kind of awesome that there are over a thousand <laughs> people in the Slack now. I mean, this was... Uh, like an experiment that uh, Ben and I started right in the beginning of Acquired, and now it's taken on a life of its own. So thank you guys for being such great members of the community. Maybe our our large Slack will help us get an audience with members of the Slack team when we cover the Slack IPO in, in coming years. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a good episode. Yeah, yeah. Anything else before we uh, we dive into to history and facts on Stitch Fix? No, I'll stop interrupting you. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Sweet. So, Stitch Fix, uh, before we get into the much discussion that we will have around the narrative section, but first, let's go back uh, just almost exactly seven years ago uh, in late 2010 to when Stitch Fix was founded, and it was started by two women, uh, CEO Katrina Lake, who was then a business school student at Harvard, at HBS, and the wife of a friend of hers from college, uh, she went to undergrad at Stanford, uh, named Erin Morrison Flynn. And Erin had been a buyer for J. Crew. Katrina was looking for businesses to start, and, and she uh, didn't really like shopping for clothes, but liked looking, you know, nice and, and especially professional as a business school student and thinking about. Uh, starting a business and her career after business school. Um, so they decide that there might be an opportunity to team up here. So they started the company um, to be a online fashion company and they decided to call it Rack Habit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as I read it, I was trying to think, is this actually a way worse name than Stitch Fix or have I just heard Stitch Fix so many times now where Rack Habit feels like a dumb, ridiculous, silly, they could never be successful with that name name? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it sounds a lot like rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, is that like some kind of like weird task rabbit parody? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> also started in Boston. Uh, hmm. But the world may never know because it doesn't stay rack habit for long. Uh, but the inspiration for the company and the product is that right around the same time, uh, there was a company uh, actually might be another good acquired episode called Trunk Club that was based in Chicago. And Trunk Club had uh, pioneered, along with, with a few other businesses, this idea of an online retailer where instead of the customers choosing the clothes they want and buying them, they actually employed stylists, personal stylists, and the stylists would choose clothes and send them on a regular basis to their, to their clients. 
Um, and then the clients would try on the clothes and decide if they like them and if they like them, keep them. So it was like having a personal shopper online for you. And Trunk Club was ended up being fairly successful, was acquired by Nordstrom eventually. Um, but they only did this for men. Katrina and Aaron thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity to do this for women as well. So they, they start Rack Habit and they, they first, you know, they sign up a few friends in the Boston area and they decide to be really analytical about what they're doing. So rather than just, you know, sending them whatever they found uh, that they thought was was attractive, um, they asked pretty detailed questions about the style preferences of their friends. And they used an online survey to, to gather all this data. And then they started logging it on a really big Excel spreadsheet. And then they would go around to boutiques in the Boston area, fashion boutiques, and buy clothes that they thought matched the preferences that their customers were putting in. Um, so they do this while Katrina's finishing up her second year at HBS. And then when she graduates in 2011, the next year, they actually raise some seed financing. So they raise uh, $750,000 from Steve Anderson at Baseline Ventures. And Steve is a great, great, very early seed investor. He was the first investor in Instagram and many other great companies. Um, many of his portfolio companies have popped up on this show. Um, and supposedly, he had been actively out there looking for the trunk club for women. So he found it. Before we get too far from Rack Habit, there's a great uh, remnant of internet history. If you go to rackhabitblog.blogspot.com, there's the Rack Habit uh, effectively content marketing. And there's just a few blog posts um, that are, are from 2011. And it's things like their interns writing posts and blog roundups <laughs> and trend report and you know what you should be paying attention to. And the last post is uh, is called Packing List Top Five Must Haves for Sailing. And uh, it's the very first branding that you see of Stitch Fix. So that's when they sort of formally moved onto their own, you know, platform and uh, and off of Blogspot. But you can still uh, still up there. Must haves for sailing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can say I, I'm guessing that most of their their customers at that time were HBS students if they were into sailing. <laughs> <laughs> How East Coast. So uh, I guess they you know saw the light and Katrina you know had gone to Stanford for undergrad and grown up in the Bay Area. They decided to move back to San Francisco, uh, away from this East Coast sailing after after she graduates and they get the investment from Steve at Baseline, and that's when they changed the name to Stitch Fix. I think we should probably take a pause here and then talk through kind of exactly how the product works um, in this this category that uh, they help pioneer that you know they refer to as assisted commerce. So the way it works is that consumers, or as Stitch Fix calls them, clients, uh, they come to the site. And then they fill out today, they fill out the style profile online on the site uh, rather than <laughs> talking to a friend. And David, I actually I went through it this morning um, and I can tell you super, super nice, easy process. The one thing that was surprising and um, kind of a cool thing is in addition to all of your style preferences and asking the minimum number of really smart questions where they can infer the right things about you, you know, which of these two things are you more likely to wear? What tends to fit you better? Things like that. There's one that's basically like put in all of your social media handles so we can just go do our own sleuthing. And so then the stylists have that at their disposal to really understand like who are you and what is your, what do you look like publicly to the world? And in particular, I think when they were first starting, um, Pinterest was, was a huge element of that. Yep. Yeah. They, they say paste in any relevant Pinterest boards you want us to look at. Yep. And you can even share a Pinterest board with your stylist that you can both post to. 
So this is an important point. When you sign up, you fill out the style profile and you get matched with a human stylist, a, a real person who, who works for Stitch Fix. And these are mostly part-time remote workers. Uh, they have over 3,000 of them now. That human stylist, you can contact them and say you can order a quote-unquote fix. And you can have that happen either on a regular you know, subscription commerce type basis every one month or two months. Or you can just do it on demand whenever you want. So you have a job interview or a particular occasion, you can say, I have this coming up, I need an outfit, um, send me a fix. And so every time you order a quote unquote fix, uh, you pay a $20 styling fee for the work that the stylist does. And that $20 then gets applied to any items that you buy. So if you don't buy anything that they send you, you still have to pay the $20. But if you do, the first $20 gets credited. And each box that they send you fix uh, has five items. And like I said, you can keep whatever you want. You can keep one, you can keep three, you can keep four. If you keep all five, you get a 25% discount on the entire purchase. Uh, But otherwise, you're paying full price. So as opposed to a lot of other, um, well, online commerce businesses in general, but but the sort of first generation of businesses that looked like this, like Guilt Group um, or Zulily and the like, this is More not a sort sales of flash site. sales, flash sales. This is not a flash sales site. Um, these are for customers and products that are going to be purchased at full price, except if you buy all five, then you get the, the volume discount. After talking to a couple of friends who are avid Stitch Fix customers, a lot of them find themselves liking three, maybe four things and keeping the whole box anyway, just because it's the same amount and they get one more item and they can either, you know, resell that if they want or, you know, keep it and just save themselves the hassle of sending it back. It's basically like um, in, in many cases, depending on the price point, buy, buy four, get, I guess actually not depending on the price point, but buy four, get one free. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, kind of consumer psychology play. And I'm sure they're very uh, data driven, as we'll get into in a minute, about how they select those items and what the prices are and and what they put in the box. But it's interesting, you know, thinking about the uh, thinking about kind of like who who is the Stitch Fix customer? And it wasn't entirely obvious when it started. I think a lot of people thought, oh, you know, something like Truck Club, that makes sense, you know, for men. Men don't like to shop. Um, But women, of course, they like to shop. But it's interesting, you know, if you think about like kind of a two by two matrix, uh, sticking with the business school theme here of like, do you care about how you look and do you like to shop? And the Stitch Fix customer is, you know, in the yes, I care how I look, but no, I don't actually enjoy shopping. It turns out there's actually a lot more people, uh, both men and women that are in that category than you might otherwise think. Yeah, and a growing sector of maybe people who do like to shop but don't have the time for it and starting to value convenience and and especially when so many other things are getting more and more convenient, uh, uh, either shipped to us or last mile delivered to us, um, that uh, that we sort of expect that things are more convenient in our lives, even if it was something that, you know, maybe we'll, we'll take a Saturday and, and go, um, you know, go shop. It's not going to happen all the time. And if we can abstract that away from our lives and make that like, you know, the thing you only do once in a while instead of the thing you have to do all the time. Um, um, there's there's an opportunity there. Yeah, it was really funny. I was talking about this episode last night. We're on the Thanksgiving break and Jenny and I are visiting my parents and I was telling my parents about, you know, this episode we were going to do today and about Stitch Fix. They hadn't heard of it. And I was explaining this concept to them and, and both of them were like, I can't imagine women ever doing that. And uh, and I and they're like, this must be a generational thing. And I was like, no, you know, I don't think so. Like their target customer is actually uh, in their, you know, in their late 30s through late 40s. 
opportunities to start new businesses aren't always formed by technological shifts. They're often formed by societal shifts. And in the very same way that people would balk at the idea that you would let a stranger stay in your home or you would get into the back of a stranger's car, um, this feels like a thing that's unintuitive that, you know, quote unquote, women won't do that, 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 you know, it's, it, the world has changed and, and people value convenience. And we'll, we'll get back into this in a minute, but, uh, you know, Stitch Fix, for all of the growth and the great business they've built and hype, they definitely had trouble raising money along the way. And I think this was this was part of it. But just like any, you know, great business that gets built, you have to find something that's not obvious or, or else, you know, then why wouldn't have it already been done? Right, um, right. Okay, so diving back in, they had relocated to San Francisco. So they'd relocated to San Francisco. Um, the business starts growing. Um, and, and the next year after they move out in 2012, they make two really key hires. So the first is a guy named Mike Smith and Mike had been the COO of walmart.com and he came over and was stitch fix first COO. He then became the GM of the men's business when they launched that, uh, I think about a year ago now. Um, and now he's back in the role as, as COO of the whole company again. And the second and perhaps even more important hire they made is they hire a guy named Eric Coulson. And Eric had been the VP of data science at Netflix uh, and the chief algorithms uh, officer. So he was the guy at Netflix or it was his team that was responsible for the Netflix recommendation, uh, which, you know, has driven so much of their success and their usage. You know, I don't know if before that, the, if, uh, if they were positioning the business as such, but this idea that Stitch Fix is like the Netflix of fashion. Yeah. Um, it went from, it went from, you know, trunk club for women to the Netflix of fashion. And a lot of that, you know, driven by the way that they wanted to be perceived by their customers and the technology they were actually doing on the back end. Yeah. So Ben, you went through it this morning and I know you've also read a little bit, like all the data that they collect through the onboarding process then gets married with the human stylist. And there's a whole robust product on the back end for the stylist. Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit of insight into this. So after talking with someone who was uh, close to the company for a long time, they basically looked at it as the business really started clicking when Eric came over and when he brought a lot of the practices from Netflix. And then ultimately when he brought a lot of his team over as well, they really saw retention rates go up. They saw people um, um, keeping the packages after they shipped it and, and not returning as many items. Um, and they really sort of reworked the whole process for how do we learn about people and get the minimum amount of information necessary to basically deliver the best possible customer experience and have them stick for a long time. And so I was trying to figure out what exactly does that mean? Because they have 3,400 stylists who are working part-time, you know, 15-ish dollar an hour jobs remotely. Um, and so that's the huge workforce that that they claim every single fix that's sent out is, is human assembled. And yet they're claiming their recommendation engine and that they're, uh, um, you know, the Netflix of clothing. How does that work? There's actually a whole product on the back end for these stylists where where once you become one of the the 3400 you basically get all of the the output from that that data engine where they're collecting everything from your onboarding to what you're sending back and tuning based on that to a lot of really interesting innovations I'll mention in a second um, on how they store the data to make sure the fit is right 
and then using that to basically pop up options to the stylus. And then the last step is the stylist actually making the human calls about, do I really feel like this person would like this thing? And one of the really cool things they do on the back end is rather than storing size information, like this person's a small, so we'll send them a small, they store all the measurements about each article of clothing. So when they, they have a piece of clothing come into the warehouse, they take all the measurements and store it that way. And so when they are looking up, would something, you know, is this, how, how far away from is this item from a data perspective from something that would fit this person well? It's not based on uh, a variable thing what depending on how the manufacturer size is. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and they actually ask you in the onboarding, hey, what size shirt do you wear when it's a button down? Small, great. Is that usually too big, usually just right? Does it usually fit a little small? And so they use that as a starting place and then start to tune off of you selecting items over your first few fixes that they send out. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So they're, they don't make you go through the trouble of like measuring yourself, but on the back end for them on their inventory, they're not cataloging things based on just like the letter or number size. They're like actually taking the measurements of each garment. Right. Right. And uh, so the first th- the first fix they'll send you is a best estimate, but then it's really important um, um, as part of the process to constantly give feedback and it learns from basically what, what was just right, what was too small. And the further off your guesses are at the very beginning, the longer it's going to take to lock you in. Yeah. Interesting. And that's like, well, it would be really hard for a stylist to do that, even if they are like truly your personal stylist. But, you know, on a scale basis to have like thousands of clients you know, hundreds to thousands of clients per stylist. Like there's no way that could work without this data science backend. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and a lot of the ways you could argue, you know, a human could never do X, Y, Z. Right now, with the absolute state of the art, a human is still the best way to do the styling. But to your point, David, with a scale backend that's storing things in the structured way, a machine is actually way better at doing sizing than, than a human would be by eyeballing things. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the parallels to Netflix are you know, pretty clear. Right. Um, right. I, I have two more comments on their tech just to talk about, uh, well, one is how serious they are, um, about it. If you go to algorithms tour.stitchfix.com, um, there's this, this awesome explanation of how the stitch fix works on the back end, And, um, they actually put a lot of time, a lot of front end engineering work into making this page. Cause it's pretty, it's pretty crazy as you scroll down it to watch it all fly around and animate, but basically talks you through a lot of the algorithms that they use. Um, and if you click over to their engineering blog, that's called multi-threaded, which is like maybe the best name for an engineering blog uh, of any company ever. <laughs> that's awesome. It's right up there with uh, Slack's blog name of um, several people are typing. Several people are typing. That's awesome. So uh, they've made these two great hires, picking the story back up. Things are going great. The business is is starting to grow, but there are a couple hiccups that come along the way. Um, so first in the summer of 2012, Katrina and Aaron, uh, Flynn, her co-founder, um, get into a bit of a dispute that results in Flynn and Aaron, Aaron Flynn leaving the company, um, and actually filing a lawsuit against Katrina and the company and Stitch Fix that ultimately ends up getting settled a couple of years later in 2014, um, and terms are not disclosed, but not kind of really what you want to have happening in a, in an early startup. Um, and, and that, and, and potentially also some of the other dynamics we were talking about that, like on the surface, this might not seem like the most obvious market. Um, 
ends up that the company, even though it's growing and doing well and making these great hires, they kind of have trouble raising money and they need to raise another round um, because they're running low on cash. So actually, towards the end of 2012, um, Steve Anderson uh, does a $2 million bridge round for the company, uh, bridges them to the Series A. Uh, And this is not uncommon in startups and, and, and venture. But what is fairly uncommon is that a seed fund uh, would lead a, a bridge that large. I mean, that's a lot of money for a very small fund to put into a company. So Steve had a lot of faith uh, in in Katrina and what the business was the, was that was being built here. So that happens. The company apparently is is only eight weeks away from running out of cash and not make, being able to make payroll at that point. They do the two million dollar bridge, uh, and then in early 2013, they're finally able to raise a you know quote unquote proper Series A. Uh, and Lightspeed, uh, the venture firm, comes in, uh, and this is 2013. And companies are raising boatloads of capital then, and you know, even in the you know sort of new e-commerce and flash sales world, um, you know, Zulily is really large. Um, there's a lot of momentum. Uh, Lightspeed's only willing to put in another two and three quarter million. So on top of the two that uh, the additional two that Baseline puts in. They raised in total a $4.75 million Series A. And that, uh, I believe, was at just under a $14 million post money. Yet at the same time, like the business is really starting to grow. So they, they shortly after that, they ship their 100,000th uh, fix, which is quite a lot. And right around the same time, ironically, after they closed the Series A, uh, Bill Gurley at Benchmark hears about the company and hears about the momentum they have. And he gets really interested. So he gets in touch with Katrina and he asks her for a meeting. Um, And as the story goes, um, she says, well, you know, we just raised our Series A, but, you know, happy to meet with you and show you the business. Um, So they sit down. And the first thing that she does is she opens up an Excel spreadsheet and she shows him a three year forward projection that she's modeled of both a cash flow and an income statement. <laughs> and, and supposedly Bill gets quoted later as saying that has never happened in the history of my venture career. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bill, of course, was a, a former um, uh, stock analyst on Wall Street. And so he's used to seeing these models, but these are for much later, you know, like public businesses. Um, and so apparently he decides like right then and there that he wants to invest. He's seen the momentum. The numbers are great. He doesn't care about the category. It's clearly growing. Uh, he wants to do it. But unfortunately, they had just done their Series A. Uh, so he keeps lobbying Katrina and the company. And finally, just a few months later, in the fall of 2013, um, he ends up investing $12 million, Benchmark does, at a $40 million uh, post-money valuation. So to go from like <laughs> being at the end of 2012, being basically out of cash, nobody's willing to give them money. They have to go back to Steve, their seed investor, to do a bridge round. They finally get the Series A done, but not even like a full lead. It's just somebody's willing to essentially top up the bridge. And then Bill Gurley, of all people, gets so much conviction in the company that he lobbies them to invest. And I believe, um, I don't know for sure, but I was trying to figure out uh, based on pitch book data and, and looking at the IPO prospectus, I think Benchmark writes the entire $12 million check uh, into the company. And so it was quite a kind of turnaround for, for the company at that point. 
Yeah, so great for Stitch Fix there, being able to get uh, enough capital to really run the business for for a good amount of time there, and great for Benchmark looking at where Stitch Fix is today to be able to get in at that at that valuation and buy a nice chunk of the company. Great on all sides. And when you look at Katrina opening up the three year projection to to build there, I mean that's just very emblematic of uh, of of her as a business person. When you talk to people um, um, who have worked with her, they say she's extremely calm under pressure. She's analytical. She's incredibly level headed. She's high highly, highly rational about her business and like very good at reasoning from first principles. And I think, you know, you, you watch Bill uh, tweeting about um, the Stitch Fix IPO and talking about how there was never somebody better suited to run a public company than Katrina. Um, she's just very, very analytically sound and, and, and level-headed and um, it, not surprising to me that she had a, a three-year financial projection there that probably, you know, I, I, I'd love to see it and see how accurate it was. There's like a, a running joke among early stage startups of, well, who knows if if these will come true, but something tells me that they were uh, um, grounded in some very solid assumptions. It's rare, but you can make the mistake of going, you know, overboard on projections and being too, you know, having too much false precision. But what's really interesting is for this company, like this is actually necessary um, and modeling, not just, you know, oh, I think I'll do this much revenue in three years, but like the full, you know, three statements of like, you know, the cash flow statement and the income statement and um, you know, Bill doesn't say she had a balance sheet, but if you have a cash flow statement, you also need to have a balance sheet there. She had modeled, you know, all three financial statements. Like part of what kills a lot of companies in this space is like your inventory costs are just massive. And so like, as you grow, you can get underwater pretty quickly. It's really important if you're going to run this business effectively that you understand, you know, all of the financial aspects and clearly we'll get into this in narratives. I mean, Katrina does like this is an exceedingly well-run business. We're going to steal the show from narratives a little bit here, but quite the focus on uh, uh, being you in an economic positive and running a profitable business from a very early point rather than being grow, grow, grow like a lot of uh, a lot of companies where, quite frankly, the business model is predicated on it where Stitch Fix just isn't. So I think um, um, a good early recognition by the management team of that there. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I mean, they were balancing this growth and profitability and understanding uh, they weren't profitable just yet, but they would be soon understanding, you know, their balance sheet um, and their cash flow. But but they also grow hugely. So Gurley and Benchmark invest in the fall of 2013. Um, now, the company is on a June 31st or July 31st fiscal year end. So their their fiscal year ends kind of halfway through the year, a little over halfway. That current fiscal year that Benchmark invests um, at the end of it, which is in the summer of 2014, they do 73 million in revenue. And, and this company was only founded, you know, sort of less than three years before that. So, so really impressive. And then the next year, uh, they grow, you know, even more. So end of fiscal 2015, which is summer 2015 for them, they do 343 million in revenue and, 42 million in EBITDA. So they're cash flow positive and generating a huge amount, uh, especially for a four year old startup. And so at that point, and I don't know the full story, whether it was the insiders, the, the existing investors and VCs lobbying to put more money in the company or Katrina feeling like she wanted to raise a little bit more to have some flexibility as they started building out their other business lines, um, you know, men and plus size and maternity. Um, but they uh, uh, they raise another $30 million at that point, all from existing investors. And that's at a $300 million post money. 
So again, <laughs> just looking back two years before that, they couldn't raise any money. They could barely make payroll. Um, and then, and then they're doing over well over 300 million in revenue, over 40 million in EBITDA. Uh, and they just raised at a $300 million valuation. Yeah. You know, when you hear these stories, you got to wonder what it feels like to be an employee at one of these companies. If you look at you know, 2012 versus 2013 or 2013 versus 2014. It's like you could have been at the company for only like 12 months. And I feel like when you get a new job or you start something, it takes you kind of six months to feel like, okay, I know where the controls are. I feel like got my hand on this thing. You go from feeling like it is a thing that's duct taped together that might work to like, holy crap, the demand is insane and we're actually meeting it and we're actually running our business efficiently here. Like I it must just feel like whiplash to, to turn your head that fast and, and change your mindset that, that significantly and constantly be learning all the new tools that your, your technology team is putting out. And I don't know, it's, it's uh, unnatural, <laughs> it, yeah. it seems. Well, and I got to imagine that this is, Katrina, you know, from very early on back in 2012, as we talked about, you know, really put some fantastic people on the management team. I mean, uh, you know, Mike Smith from, from Walmart, he was a long veteran there. You know, and then of course Eric from from Netflix on the data science side. You know, these are these are folks that have run retail businesses. Um, you know, at at scale before. So the next year, fiscal twenty sixteen, they do seven hundred and thirty million in revenue and seventy two million dollars in EBITDA, and then twenty seventeen, so the year that ended this past summer for them, they do just a hair under a billion dollars in revenue and sixty million in EBITDA. So EBITDA actually goes down. Um, you know, but they argue they're investing much more in, you know, infrastructure and fixed costs and they're adding out new verticals. Um, so it makes sense throughout the summer. It's rumored that they're preparing to go public. Uh, and then finally in October of this year, 2017, they do file to go public and they're seeking to, they were seeking to price the IPO in a range of 18 to $20 a share. Um, which would translate to about a 1.8 to $2 billion market cap. So even, you know, a great, you know, well over 5x return on even the the Series C, the, the $300 million round that insiders did, and huge return on the investments that they made before that. And it seems like this would go great. The company's got huge growth. They're doing almost a billion dollars in revenue, you know, sort of grow even more than that. Um, of course, they're going to price above the range and trade up. But that's not quite what ends up happening. So they go on the roadshow, and we'll transition into the narrative section here in a minute. But just to wrap up what happens with the IPO, they start the roadshow in October. Kind of a whole bunch of questions come up. They end up downsizing the IPO. And then on November 16th, they do price the IPO. They price it at $15 a share under the range that they were shooting for. And then they do go public uh, on November 16th. And they end up trading uh, just under a billion and a half market cap. So still great. But clearly there was some disconnect between all the momentum that this business appeared to have, and it certainly did, and then how the public markets uh, received it. Um, so today, a little over a week later, um, the business is trading at uh, a little over $18.60 a share, eighteen sixty-two. And so that is within the range that they initially targeted it's traded up a little bit um, but certainly hasn't you know run like i think some people thought it might we've talked about this on the show before but there's a lot of strategy and there's a lot of different parties who want a lot of different things out of an ipo and 
they didn't get a pop. They ended up IPOing for uh, you know a lower price per share than um, than they were aiming to. But I don't really read this as bad news. I mean, I think there are different businesses that need to do different things around their IPO. Um, for example, Stitch Fix didn't have a huge pop here, but their customers don't care how their stock is doing. So they don't need to necessarily create the story of day one trading was amazing because their enterprise customers are going to be buying their, you know, data services. It's, 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 it's a very different business. And I think that, you know, would they have liked to maybe price higher and, and have, have more demand on day one? I, I think so. But I'm not looking at the, the drop before the IPO or the, um, the trading immediately afterwards as, as significantly disappointing. I think that they, they got, uh, employees and, and shareholders, uh, you know, the appropriate amount of value out of the equity that they held in those companies or in that company. Yeah. Well, yeah. So let's jump into narratives. I mean, I think the question is sort of what, what caused this disconnect? Um, even though I totally agree with you, like, yeah, I mean, the vast majority of Stitch Fix's customers, probably even have no idea that they did go public. But what was the disconnect here in it? And I think maybe let's start with the uh, investor analyst side, um, and then we can get back into the company side, which pretty much will echo a lot of the things that we've talked about already. Um, but on the investor side, I think there are a few things. So one, uh, Blue Apron had gone public earlier this year and has been quite a disappointing IPO. Uh, that would be a good one for us to cover in the future. I think there is definitely a healthy and in some ways warranted amount of skepticism on the investor side of the fence right now about any commerce company, well, really any commerce company that's not Amazon, but any commerce company that is playing, not playing tricks with, but doing something um, that the company would say innovative uh, with how they sell their products. And in particular, you know, the box that Stitch Fix sends, you know, having five items in the box um, and, you know, the, the consumer psychology to encourage you to keep all of them. You the, know, the question you, is just you're just like, saying there's sort of skepticism around, is that a sustainable actual piece of value? I think the skepticism is how much of this stuff do people really want or need? Um, versus something like Amazon, you know, you can buy, you go find and buy whatever you want or you don't buy from Amazon. Um, but it's completely up to you with blue apron. What we definitely saw is, is a couple things. One people's desire for just, uh, staying subscribed or staying engaged with a you know regular delivery service like that is actually a lot lower than people thought. Um, and, and thus there's churn. Um, and, and two, the, the addressable market for a service like that is also much smaller than, uh, than people might've thought. And so as you start to reach the end of your core customer base, the amount of money that you have to spend in marketing to then go acquire further customers ends up being a lot more because those customers are much harder to reach and acquire because they're not your target customers. And so I think there was, there was a fair amount of a fine point that analysts took to stitch fix in trying to analyze this and figure out, Hey, where is stitch fix on this continuum? Um, and, and, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, we're not the first ones to say this, obviously, you know, many others and Ben Thompson have said the same thing. Stitch fix is fairly mature in terms of saturating, um, their, their target customer base. Um, and you can see that it, it's worth diving into sort of why this is the case. Stitch fix is a great example of a company that basically grew within a narrow segment and, you know, not, not very narrow. They're an over a billion dollar company. 
um, but a narrow segment of people that were just crazy for it. So they didn't have to use, uh, um, you know, all the traditional marketing techniques that you would see that are costly and, and help you really, really scale to the masses, but lots of word of mouth, lots of non-technology uh, based marketing, and uh, uh, were able to kind of grow really, really cheaply, uh, or at least acquire customers very cheaply. Totally. And, and you can see that. I mean, it's pretty incredible. In 2016, fiscal 2016, where they do $730 million in revenue, they spend $25 million in advertising, uh, which $25 million is a lot of money. But compared to that amount of revenue, that's minuscule. Um, and especially for the commerce, uh, for, for a retail, you know, e-commerce business. Um, so that's fantastic. But then in, in 2017 fiscal 2017, um, that jumps almost three X the advertising spend up to over 70 million and revenue, you know, again, grows nicely. Um, but not nearly at the same rate that it had grown in the past is 34%. I mean, it's yeah, just 34 percent versus over 100 percent. And that, that and that's when they three X their advertising spend. And now they're reaching close to triple digit millions on advertising. So you can definitely see these dynamics at play where, you know, one of two things are happening. Either their existing uh, customers are churning or ordering at lower rates. And when you dig into the cohort analysis that they do provide, uh, they don't provide quite the full picture, but you can dig into the numbers. Both of those things are happening. And the new customers, you know, the marginal new customer that they're trying to acquire is harder to find. And, and so that's why they're having to spend so much more in advertising. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the moral of that story is they're now spending way more money to acquire customers that spend way less. And they can still create a great business on that. But, you know, that that is a very different dynamic than a lot of the the. A plus companies that we've covered on this show that are just total outliers where, um, and this is something Ben Thompson pointed out this week, the aggregators over time, the network effect is so powerful that the lifetime customer value increases and the cost to acquire decreases. And in this scenario, you know, they, they basically, it's, it looks more like a traditional business where they saturate a core market and then um, it gets harder to acquire more people over time. Yeah. And what you see exactly like like you and ben are saying is that in the companies like an uber like an airbnb um you know you're seeing dynamics with your customer base that actually look like the best SaaS companies you know we covered atlassian we covered square and we talked about how having negative churn for those companies was really important because that meant that as they acquired customers you know each year even though they would have some on a numbers basis customers churn out the ones that they already had were spending more and more such that they would spend more every year at that cohort. Um, you know, Stitch Fix is the opposite of that because clients, as they call them, end up spending kind of on average less than half uh, in the second year of what they spent in the first year. And then it continues to decline from there. So they're having to constantly refill the funnel with new folks. I'm going to use this as a quick tangent point. You mentioned something about it. You can't quite tell from their, um, their SEC filing for the, for the IPO, like what, you know, exactly what's going on, but you can kind of tease it out. The sections that are required in an S1 are not actually congruent anymore with understanding exactly how that business is doing, because we have developed such better measurement tools where if you're an insider, you can have a much higher fidelity view of the business. And yet we don't 
mandate some of these uh, newer and more high fidelity understandings of the business in the public disclosures. So there are ways to be coy and dance around the story without telling the whole story. You know, I don't know if we need to change this, but it is worth talking about that when companies, and we've seen this in, in Blue Apron's case, we've seen it in Stitch Fix's case, for competitive reasons and for, for other reasons, uh, especially if there's a story inside the business that you don't want to be the dominant uh, uh, point for pricing your IPO, you, you just gloss over some of this stuff or you, you, you give two non-comparable metrics. And so, you know, the big thing that's still missing from S1s is the, the ability to look at cohort analysis of what was your customer acquisition cost for that cohort? What were the, L you know, what's the LTV for that cohort so far? And really being able to compare even just a CAC to LTV ratio for a single point in time, let alone change over time, be incredibly helpful for understanding if you want to buy a stock or not as somebody, you know, a, a member of the American public. This has been pointed out by by several people, and and one person, um, one really great uh, piece that I'll reference later on on TechCrunch. It was a guest post called "Unboxing Stitch Fixes S1" by Ezra Galston. It's begging to have a light shown on it. And you know, I, Stitch Fix does I, they kind of do half the job in their S1. Um, they do show their cohort customer cohorts in terms of how much they order, um, and they even go down to they show which is actually quite helpful two-year cohorts for uh, two-year purchase behaviors for cohorts that are um that have been around for over two years now they only show two of those even though they have multiple other cohorts going back farther which is a little bit of a red flag um but kudos to them for showing it two-year purchasing behavior one-year purchasing behavior and six-month purchasing behavior and that's really helpful to be able to see all those different time periods and that can help you tease out um you know as we did wow actually like the amount of money that people spend in the first year and really in the first six months drops off very quickly what stitch fix doesn't show at all is their cost to acquire each customer um this sort of the other side of the equation we can triangulate with the fact that they tripled their advertising expenditure in 2017 and they only grew revenue 30 percent even as Ben Thompson also points out, while they're adding new categories like men and maternity and plus size. Um, so that's a little bit of a red flag, too. I wouldn't lump them in with the Blue Apron S1, but they're also not where like the Atlassian S1 was either. Totally. And, you know, it's hard to fault any company for doing this. Everybody's is doing as much as they need to. But if, if you're supposed to be a member, the spirit of the law being you're supposed to be an informed member of the American public making a decision on if you believe in the future of this company or not, um, whether or not people actually, no, nobody actually reads S1s except for um, people at investment banks. But you can misrepresent if you want to how your company is doing. And the only thing that people um, have to go off of, of is uh, reading into this lack of information is a bad thing. Now, on the other hand, though, clearly, <laughs> clearly folks in the investor community picked up on this and, and a few other things on the roadshow. And that's what led to the downsized IPO. Um, but maybe let's switch back over to the company narrative here, which I think is also a really equally valid narrative. And it's it's two things in, in my view. One sort of a direct rebuttal to what we were just talking about is like, hey, we are an extremely well-run company. And we've done a great job managing this business. 
we've raised only $42 million in venture capital, or actually I think it's a little more than that, but most of that we didn't even need that $30 million round um, that we raised from our insiders. Uh, we've built this business, you know, to at this point run rate over a billion dollars in revenue. We're very large. We've done something that, you know, at the outset seemed crazy that we would find this quadrant of the two by two matrix of people, you know, of all, you know, genders who, who enjoy looking good, but don't enjoy shopping. Um, and, and this is a cash flow positive business with really meaningfully positive EBITDA. I mean, what other <laughs> startup, and we've done all this by the way, in like less than seven years, you know, what, what other startup, uh, these days could say that, uh, and all that is very true. Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, it's so capital efficient. They were funding, uh, acquiring new customers largely with profit um, for the last few years. It's it's just it's impressive to watch. The, I had this down in tech themes, but I'm going to talk about it now in narratives instead. And again, this is this is um, um, from that TechCrunch article. Where if you're interested in this episode, go read that article. It's super super well done, super analytical. It's really the anti Amazon. Like Stitch Fix is succeeding in an era where they're doing uh, profits first. So they're they're profitable on, on every customer, at least every customer or every cohort. Um, and it's it's about making sure that they have good unit economics before they grow. And it's just a very different tack than a lot of these other companies are taking. Like Amazon has... Um, I don't know what this, it's like over half of America or half of, uh, us households now. Um, and you know, that they, they make, um, I think their margins are, are like 2% or less. And you look at, at a company like stitch fix that says like, well, we, we provide a great service and we charge for it and we make money on it. It's interesting looking at what can succeed in this, this, uh, uh era of Amazon where you're focusing on, um, the, the stitch fix tack of products, not growth doing things that Amazon can't because Amazon's margins are so thin. So they they have uh, this this assisted, I think it's assisted commerce. Is that what we're, uh, we're calling it? Yeah. This basically uh, assisted commerce niche where it costs some of their margin in order to match you with a stylist and have that stylist do work for you. And it granted, it, it costs $20, so the people are paying for that stylist, but it, it does cost Stitch Fix something to, to provide that service. And that amount that they're spending on a stylist is something Amazon really just can't do because their margins are so thin. And so where, whereas Amazon caters to, um, you know, everybody in the, the world gets exactly the thing they want, they, they can't really layer in this like highly curated thing because it's not their business model. And so that, that is, is where you sort of have niches left for, uh, for the stitch fixes of the world. And I think, you know, a really important you know, sort of supporting detail under that is they don't talk about this in their S1, but if you do some analysis, um, you can figure it out. And is that their contribution margin positive and profitable on the first order that uh, that a new customer makes with them. Um, so they're making enough margin uh, out of um, the very first time that somebody orders a fix to pay for you know all of the all the variable costs, all the fixed costs that go into serving that. Uh, that customer and all of the customer acquisition costs. So I can imagine Stitch Fix and Katrina here saying like, yeah, like I see all your points in your math, you know, investor community, but like I'm being so responsible here that I'm not only am I not losing money on customers the first time, but I'm actually making money the first time. And then so any further orders that they make with me is just gravy. Um, you know, that's positive right. cash flow for me. I think that begs the question of, okay, why do they need to IPO? 
that this is this is our what would have happened otherwise section. Um, yeah. So I think I, I think let's let's marry maybe the, the what would have happened otherwise with what I think is the other part of the company's narrative around their IPO, which you alluded to a little bit, Ben, but is I just want to call out more clearly is that the future of Stitch Fix is the future of any commerce company that could in theory compete with Amazon and that we are a personalized commerce company and personalization is is the next wave in commerce and retail and and the way we do that is through this huge investment that we've made in data science marrying that with human judgment and being able to provide you know today experiences um to to our clients that that they can't get anywhere else yeah and i I think there's there's a tremendous amount of truth to that I think personalization is the puck uh, where everyone's skating, but Stitch Fix has the resources to do it. Now, of course, not to say Amazon isn't also going there as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But uh, but that's that's for, you know, we'll get into that later, perhaps. But I think but I think that's part of the reason why they would want to go public. I mean, one is is clearly liquidity, um, you know, is is as we've talked about many times on this show, a good thing for for founders, for investors, for employees. Um, but, but two, you know, I think if they're really going to, and this is sort of my take on these competing narratives, I think if stitch fix is really going to end up realizing the totality of their vision, they're going to have to become even more like Netflix where, you know, they're making their own quote unquote content as well. They're taking all the data that they get from all the people watching or buying from them and all of the. Um, you know, films or, or, you know, fashion brands that supply them. Um, and then they take that data and, and can make better actual, you know, fashion items themselves. And, and they're already just starting to do this. So there's a really small line in the S1 that I think they clearly buried because they don't want, you know, if I'm them, I don't want my suppliers to get, uh, you know, to my brand partners to get too worried right now. But there's this line that says, in October 2017, we purchased certain knitting, cutting, and sewing assets in Pennsylvania to experiment with making very small quantities of apparel to test with our clients. <laughs> At present time, we have no plans to manufacture apparel in any meaningful quantities and anticipate that we will continue to rely almost exclusively on third-party vendors to supply our merchandise. You can imagine Netflix saying the same thing five years ago <laughs> while they were in the background, you know, yeah, investing. Disney, hugely. we're only delivering your content and other no people's words. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> and so that might be why they need to go public now, um, you know, to get both the um, both the capital, uh, but also the you know the the public currency. They may need to make acquisitions. Um, they will need to hire a lot more to be able to do that. Yeah, this is one. You know, so. Um, history of acquired we wanted to only start with companies that that we had a long long lens on and had had spent uh, uh you know had had a decade to understand what the company did with the acquisition capital or, or i'm sorry by by acquiring the company or or in this case um did with the capital that they they raised in an ipo you know stitch fix just happened and so we don't know yet but foreseeably yeah it's 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 m&a it's ramping up production Liquidity to, to employees is super important, as we talked about to the um, uh, in the Square episode, where suddenly because they they basically did a down round IPO, um, 
many of their recent employees were very, very undercompensated. So super important for retention and, and recruiting great people to, um, to, you know, make those, uh, make that stock worth something and worth something in the, the, um, very reasonable time frame. But, uh, I don't think we yet know why, why, you know, what are they going to do with the cash they raised? And it wasn't a huge IPO either. That's, that's worth touching on. I think it was, uh, what, a hundred and, um, yeah, I think they ended up raising 120 million? 20 million. Yeah. So they sold less than 10% of the company. Right. Right. So it's not like they're going to go out and make a, you know, gigantic, gigantic acquisition with this, but they, they could start ramping up a, a big loss leader for now and, and eventually uh, have a dominant line of their own. Well, don't forget too. I mean, and, um, you know, Katrina talks about this as she talked about this in an interview after the IPO. This is a company that has always, for whatever reason, had a hard time raising money, including in the IPO. Um, and if if you need both resources and the ability to go make, you know, be they cash or stock acquisitions, um, having a public currency for your stock uh, is certainly much better than if you're having to argue <laughs> about your valuation. Well, here's another thing is, do you think that they'll shift a little bit since they are, they do appear to have saturated their, their core niche a little bit. Do you think they'll, they'll start uh, being more aggressive on growth and use the IPO capital to, to finance growth a little bit and, and take some losses? Well, I don't know. In a little bit, they're between a rock and a hard place here because they need to grow and, and growth, as we alluded to, has been slowing. And in particular, when you look at it on a quarterly basis, growth has been slowing significantly every quarter for the last uh, several quarters. Um, so they're going to need to grow to please Wall Street. But at the same time, Wall Street is also heavily focused, as we've been talking about, on the economics around that growth and how much they're investing in marketing um, and, and customer acquisition. So they're definitely going to have to strike a delicate balance for a while. For me, it just comes back to the question that I think will decide um, you know, whether whether Stitch Fix is, you know, a one to two billion dollar market cap company in perpetuity, which which is great. I think they're an incredibly well run run company. They've proved that. Um, or if they can break out, you know, and like Netflix, go from, you know, being valued kind of on a certain level uh, to something much bigger is I think whether they can execute on this, you know, being able to create their own supply that is differentiated and much better um, suited to what their customers want than third-party brands. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. One other thing to discuss here before we move on to tech themes is they went the IPO route. I mean, they they, they could have not stayed an independent company. I, I don't know anything in particular about um, who might have tried to acquire them or when, but we're in this era where brick and mortars are paying tons of money to acquire online, uh, you know, e-commerce companies that are doing really well. We saw Bonobos, we saw Jet.com, Trunk Club, their sort of sister brother company got acquired by Nordstrom. I mean, I assumed along the way there were opportunities to to do that, but um, you know, clearly stayed the course and put the stake in the ground that we believe that um, this is an enduring thing that should be an independent company. You know, it's a little bit like how much do you believe that? Um, right. <laughs> I'm right. remembering uh, your your quote on our episode about the Snapchat IPO um, because if you really believe that, this is the route to go. I mean, if you don't, um, you know, you should take Walmart stock <laughs> right. uh, or Walmart cash. Right. Or, you know, don't take AOL stock. 
Yeah. <laughs> Somehow, I, I don't think Stitch Fix is anywhere near <laughs> the Stitch Fix IPO. We haven't created it yet, but it won't be in that league. No, no. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Should we move on to uh, tech themes? Yeah. Per usual, I think we've talked about a lot, but yeah, yeah. Go ahead. A big one, you know. Well, here's one that we just haven't. There's one little piece of this one we haven't talked about yet: the decline of brick and mortar and the the rise of uh, of e-commerce. Um, this is one where it's in every freaking iBanking deck that you see now, and and research report that you see now, and it's duh, completely obvious. For a long time, people, some people were claiming that this would happen and other people were sort of like, yeah, well, we'll see when it does happen. Katrina was one of those people when they started Stitch Fix and when she would speak on on stages for the first few years of the company that was just saying like, we're a year or two away from this and just nailed the timing of it. I mean, this is this is something that lots of people have been forecasting for a long time. Um, but but I think uh, uh, Katrina went out there and did something about it and stood by it and it, it was just perfect on timing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence that during the time of Stitch Fix sort of founding and growth, you know, we've had you know, JCPenney on the verge of collapse and Macy's and Sears and um, so many of these companies, you know, uh, whether they um, are bankrupt now or, you know, are trending that way, really, there've been a lot of dominoes to fall. Um, and the timing is great. Yep. Yeah, my other one is uh, this business, and, and again, everyone should check out Galston's piece in, in TechCrunch, a fast cost of customer acquisition payback period. It's tough to see exactly what it is from, from the S1, but um, the bottom line is that it's it's really fast. And this is a combination, you know, it's, it's on the order of nine to 18 months. The important thing to, to look at here is, is why. And, you know, the goods they sell are pretty expensive. 
they make a nice margin on the goods and it's about about 45%, which is in line with sort of traditional retail margins. Um, and uh, they, you know, through all their data science, they have the ability to actually send people things they want. So um, over time, the the amount that people are keeping stuff they send goes up. And, and so they, they end up spending more with, with Stitch Fix on each order and then sticking out and, and staying a customer for longer too. So lower churn. Um, and it's, it's just a, a business that, um, you know, you can grow more quickly because your customers pay back those, those, uh, acquisition costs very quickly. I think it's even quicker than that. Like we were talking about that, uh, for most customers, I think they're paying back. It obviously depends on how much they, um, how much they keep in their first fix, but, um, you know, immediately on their first fix. Now the question is how long it does it take them from the time that they spend the marketing to acquire those customers to when they order that fix. Um, but yeah. that's, and this is one where I don't want to throw out exact numbers because those were derived. And I think that depending on how you define things. Um, yeah, um, man, it would be nice if they had put that in the S1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the only, the only theme I'd add is, is one, um, that I think I've talked about a few times on the show, but, uh, um, really this concept of, you know, is the stock market a, a voting machine or a weighing machine? And, and I actually think, I mean, based on the amount of buzz that Stitch Fix, the company has had in Silicon Valley over the past few years, you know, they have a great team. There are phenomenal people that work there. They compete and win for talent against the very best companies in the Valley, you know, Airbnb, Uber, Google, Facebook all the time, especially on the data science team. I mean, they are, um, really, really, you know, the team Eric has built, um, incredible, um, and, and so there's a lot of hype about the company and, and a lot of it deserved, but the stock market, uh, didn't vote based on hype. They, you know, they voted based on some really, you know, rational, um, I think as we've discussed, uh, concerns about the future prospects of the business and its, and its growth prospects. So I, I just find it really interesting that like, this is to me, another example of there's this meme in Silicon Valley that like wall street and the stock market is all you know, short-term focused and they don't get these companies. And I think we've actually seen on a number of the IPOs that we cover, um, they get them sometimes better than, than Silicon Valley does. Um, and, and still, you know, this has been a great outcome for Katrina, for the employees, for the investors, you know, I mean, the last round was done, um, you know, at a $300 million valuation and they're trading at almost 2 billion now on the public markets. Like awesome. this is a fantastic outcome. And Lake Lake picked up uh, 17 million in cash uh, the morning of the IPO. Um, she owns 15 percent of the company, so post IPO, her shares were worth about 250 million dollars. Like great, you know, lo- lots of good things for everyone. And actually, if if you look at what Lake owns of the company, it's it's at some point we should do a show and talk about sort of where different parties end up uh, from a ownership basis around IPO. Owning 15 percent of the company uh, and and isn't bad especially if if you really believe as we were talking about earlier that there is an opportunity to grow the company you know through through taking the Netflix approach to grow the company 10 or 100x in the public markets you know owning 15% of a 100 billion dollar 200 billion dollar public company um, you know, as Jeff Bezos and and Mark Zuckerberg approved uh, is <laughs> a lot of money as we sit here on the morning after Jeff Bezos becoming worth 100 billion dollars can safely say incredible yeah all right should we grade it yeah um i'll start first super high variance because we just 
the the way that we grade on this show is did doing this thing, the IPO or the acquisition, uh, was it a long run good move for them? And and did it enable them to do something that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do? We don't yet know what they're going to do with the cash. Um, some of it will go to growth. Presumably some of it will go to starting a new line. You know, lots of R&D there. But of course, it was a good move. Was it a great move? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Uh, we don't know yet. I'd say it was a necessary move and the timing was about right. I'll go with uh, a B, and there's variance to go probably up to an A there. Do I think there's variance to go up to an A plus and become a um, you know a hundred billion dollar company? I don't think so, but um, maybe worth revisiting at some point. It's interesting these grading on IPOs. Like it's much better when <laughs> yeah. we do it many years later, and we can we can really assess the impact that the IPO had on the business. And I think there's an opportunity here, as we've been talking about, for the IPO to be a catalyzing event to really take stitch fix from you know being a a commerce company to a you know really unique and leading provider of of fashion you know garments to everyone that using data science to do things that nobody else can do they're not there today what we can grade today though I think they probably should have gone public a year ago. Um, and, and this is an example of like, you know, there's so many things about timing that are out of your control. Um, they couldn't control the reception to the Blue Apron IPO and all the decisions that were made around there and the impact that that had on Wall Street and investor psychology. And, you know, quite honestly, Stitch Fix was growing much faster and a lot of the economics around their customers and cohorts looked better a year ago than they do today. Um, so that probably would have been a better time to do it. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine that the company was quite ready at that point. I mean, it's still only a seven-year-old company right now. And to argue that they should have been ready a year earlier, maybe even more things would have gone wrong trying to pushing pushing to go too soon. So yeah, I think I also, uh, I think I go be right now um you know it was fine but they certainly could have optimized more um but again like these things like the real grade is something we'll know in five to ten years all right carve outs carve outs let's do it um so mine over the break i have over the thanksgiving break i've been reading uh kareem abdul jabbar's new book uh coach wooden and me our 50-year friendship on and off the court um, about his relationship with, uh, with John Wooden, the, the wizard of Westwood, his coach at UCLA, who was just a, a legend in basketball, uh, but also in all sports and, and really just in life, an amazing, amazing guy as is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, an equally amazing guy, but really, a really fun book about how, you know, when Kareem came to UCLA from New York city, you know, highly, highly, one of the most highly recruited, uh, sought after basketball players from high school ever, uh, back when high school players played all four years in college, cause you couldn't go to the NBA right out of high school or after one year. Um, and how his relationship with, with John Wooden evolved from like, you know, coaching him and then helping, you know, further hone his skills and talent into becoming one of, you know, certainly the top three greatest basketball players ever in his NBA career. Um, but then how that evolved into just this 50 year incredible friendship and how close they were, even though they came from such incredibly different, um, backgrounds and ages, uh, really, really great book. Well, mine is, uh, not a book, not a piece of media, obvious and almost a fanboy pick. It's the iPhone 10. 
I, David and I talked about how you you were you were getting the iPhone SE, and there was nothing impressive about the ten that you could tell. It's one of these things where you use it, and you are like, "Oh my god, this is so different," and it's difficult to articulate why. And I'm going to do my best job at articulating why because I feel like I'm using a product that came out two years from now, and I'm like getting to use it like as I'm time traveling from 2019 to now. Um, and, and, and when you use other, like uh, every other traditional iPhone, they all f- feel the same relative to this. Like they all feel like they were foreshadowing that this would be the product one day. And it's, it's a lot of the gestural stuff that you're like, oh, this is so natural and this makes so much sense. It's a lot of the, uh, uh I feel like finally the display technology and the, um, the uh, compute power have made it so that it feels like everything is exactly directly manipulated without any sort of lag, without any sort of distance between my thumb and what I'm actually tapping on. Um, things just happen so smooth and so fluid and, and um, it, it just feels like I'm interacting with something directly instead of through, you know, through this piece of electronics. And uh, I know that sounds ridiculous and I know it sounds like, I'm, I'm like t- too bought in on something, but, um, I, I just haven't, you know, I haven't enjoyed using a product this much in a long time. Wow. Interesting. So I've heard that from other people too. Um, and I still haven't tried one in person. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, but how do you feel? So like in the keynote, right? Like they definitely positioned the iPhone 10 as, you know, the future, you know, of iPhone, the future of computing, you know, the next 10 years, do you feel, and, and, and I was thinking and hearing that, like, I don't know that the phone is the next 10 years of computing. Like mm. how do you, but how do you feel now having used it? Um, so I think I've talked on the show before about how I want there to be this world where it's just maybe like the watch and the AirPods or something like that. I think we'll always have a screen of some sort because as good as voices for input, it's terrible for output. So it's really good for consumption to have a screen. I don't think we are three to five years away yet from going phoneless. I think we're going to have continue to have phones for a little while longer. I think when Apple says that, it's more about like, you know, we're going to use OLED and we're going to use like Face ID works so effing well. Like it's, 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 kind of mind blowing here. And then the, when it works in the dark, when I have a hood on and I have my glasses on and it still works, you're like, how on earth? Um, so there, there's some of these features where you're just like, if you told me that you were going to try and build this, build this, even with a massive team out, I would tell you that like, ah, that's been tried before. And it's kind of impossible because it's really, it's always a terrible experience. Like all those things are, are not actually a terrible experience and, and they feel like they're all baked into one device. Wow. Well, so. there you have it. <laughs> You've got the 10. I've got the SE. <laughs> Next time we get together in person, we're going to have to. Yeah, we should, we should, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to miss the nice small form factor. You're going to use this thing and be blown away. Well, but the 10 is like, uh, it's smaller than the plus form yeah. factor, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. When I go and pick up my seven plus again, I realize I felt like I was using a phone that was like too awkwardly sized for me. And it like turns out I was, and this one That's makes totally how I feel now too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I also, I'll put this out here. I think the notch is here to stay for a while. Not only do I th- not think are they going to be able to get rid of those those sensors, but I think the notch is the new home button. And it's the thing that makes you know that it's an iPhone. If used correctly, which I think most standard uh, OS apps do, um, you just don't really, it's, 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 it's not an issue. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Well, uh, listeners, thanks for, for being with us today. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes. Um, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. We'll see you next time. Thank you.